Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We're diving deep on the NBA's All-Star Weekend. It was, I don't know, an okay weekend. It wasn't anything all that exciting. I feel like uh, every week or every year we get excited about All-Star Weekend and there's typically one event in some regard or another that lives up to the hype. Last year, the All-Star Game, I thought was actually really great. We had Steph going for 50. We had the LeBron buzzer beater. It was really fun. This year, it was probably the dunk contest that stood out the most and the all-star game that lived down to expectations the least. So we'll talk about all of that. We'll talk about everything we saw from rookie sophomores very briefly to the all-star weekend festivities on Saturday, all the way to the all-star game on Sunday. Then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the age limit stuff in regard to the 2023 NBA draft and beyond that came out of Adam Silver's press conference, as well as some press conferences given, uh, by some of the stakeholders regarding the collective bargaining agreement negotiations. Finally, we're going to talk a little bit about Keontae George and some 2023 draft prospects, but mostly Keontae George. If only because I think that Keontae is developing into the guy that Adam and I, I don't even know if we disagree the most about Keontae George, but the one that I think we have the most divergent take on. At this point. So we want to dive deep. He's coming off of a really interesting game against Kansas this weekend that for, I think, believers got them really, really excited in some respects. And for non-believers confirmed some biases and it's going to be a really fun conversation. So Spins, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, It's a wonderful Sunday evening here in the States as we are recording this right now. I am uh, ready to get back into watching normal basketball with normal defense. And uh, as much as I love the All-Star weekend and, and kind of the the reminder that it serves to me of how I really got hooked onto the game of basketball, I think that's the, the nostalgia factor of All-Star weekend that always hits home with me is I remember watching all of these as a kid really thinking the all-star game was a huge deal, loving the three-point contest and the dunk contest. So there's something that hits home that reminds you why you're a fan first and kind of a, an analyst or somebody who studies the game of basketball second about the weekend. But uh, it, it definitely leaves me longing for a little bit more competitive juices to be flowing the next time I watch some tape. Well, and let's talk about the all-star game here. So Jason Tatum sets the all-star scoring record. Uh, I think he ended up with 55, if I remember correctly. Damian Lillard made a half-court three-pointer, just like pulling up for fun, which was really fun. But those are really the only two things I'm going to remember about this all-star game long-term. Jason Tatum getting super hot. Uh, I mean, I guess like Donovan Mitchell got pretty hot there in the third quarter as well. That was good. 
that's really all there was to this thing. And again, I, I think it's worth bringing up. Everyone talks about how great the Elam ending can be and how uh, terrific it can lead to like awesome results. This is kind of the downside of the Elam ending in some ways where, you know, team LeBron didn't really have a chance to come back in this game because they got down by so much in the first three quarters. I think it was like a 13, 15 point lead and team LeBron had to outscore them like 27 to 24 or 37 to 24, 39 to 24, something like that in order to come back. The Elam, the Elam ending is interesting in some ways. This is a circumstance where I think it ended up creating an anticlimax to the proceedings today. And that's okay. Look, not every all-star game is going to be as cool as it was last year where we came down to the end and it was a really, really fun showing. This one was anticlimactic in addition to being uh, just kind of a bore throughout it. Look, every all-star game has these, has these moments in the first three quarters where no defense is played. We got some cool John Morant dunks. We got some, uh, pull up threes. We got the fun moment where Nikola Jokic was pumped that he finally scored an all-star game. <laughs> I don't know, man. It was just whatever. Yeah. I mean, you got to see the highlights from different guys. I think LeBron's uh, alley-oop off the backboard was one that, that caught my eye really early in the first quarter, yeah. pretty notable one. And then obviously hurting his finger uh, changed the result there. Look, I mean, when you don't have Steph Curry and Giannis Attenacupo playing and then LeBron for the second half, it does change the star yeah. power and the appeal a little bit there. I thought that the well, guys Kevin Durant really, as well. Kevin Durant without being in there. And like, I don't know about you. I'd love to see Zion Williamson in a, in a format yeah. like this. Like he's the exact be type great. of guy that would, that would pop. So uh, I, I think that there was just a little bit different of a feel because maybe some of those names that I'm most attracted to watching play in a more pickup based setting like this turned into uh, just weren't really out there. Yeah. And you know, it, it is a bit of a bummer that it turned out this way because Jason Tatum clearly went for it. Like his new shoe was debuting, which yep. TNT let us know 45 times during the broadcast, <laughs> no fewer. And, you know, it was good to see him get going. It was good to see him get hot. You know, Jason Tatum is one of those guys. It, it was fun to see Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum go one-on-one in an all-star game at the end of the third quarter. But you know, how, how many of those were just wide open threes, right? Like I was trying to throughout the game, figure out ways to make this more interesting in some respect during the first three quarters. What I came up with was let them bet like in the middle of the game, like just, just let them throw down money in the middle of the game on like certain things. Be like, yeah, 10 K if you come down and score. It just like mic them all up and just have them like throwing money around like it's Michael Jordan on the golf course. Yeah. Like that seems like a fun idea. Bonuses for defensive stops. Like you get one, you know, one grand per defensive stop or something like that or 500 bucks per defensive stop. And over the course of the game, it adds up, um, you know, bar at the substitution table was one that I came up with. <laughs> like <laughs> just trying to try to come up with random ideas to make this more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I, I know we'll talk about it at some point, but I thought what the NBA did pretty well this year was change around some of the, the introductions, the starters, the lineups, how they chose teams like that format was, was really, really strong. So if 
yeah. they can figure out a way to get the game like more competitive and flowing and just an enjoyable watch for every type of basketball fan. I think they're going to be onto something with at least the Sunday portion of All-Star Weekend because it seems like everything else kind of was changed for the better this year. Yeah, I mean, the the draft worked. <laughs> i got to be real with it. Like, yeah. I had a great time with the All-Star draft. Like, that was by far the highlight of uh, NBA All-Star yeah. Sunday with the All-Star game. It was the perfect amount of, like, messy while being really fun and like not disrespectful to anybody. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, Giannis Antetokounmpo trying to take John Morant in the middle of oh, the man. reserves thing was beautiful. It was classic. Right. It was incredibly fun. You see like Bam at a bio, Jaron Jackson, Tyrese Halliburton, they're all over there cracking up. Shea Gilgis Alexander's like, look at this guy. Like, what is he doing? It was beautiful. It, it was exactly what I wanted from an event like that. Uh, corny dad jokes, like with LeBron, you're going to get those. Okay. I enjoyed it. Like I had a really, really good time with the all-star draft. I think that we need to keep doing this. We need to keep going even further with some of this stuff. I think, I don't know how yet, but we just need to keep going. Well, and there was just enough like incidental humor throughout the entire evening. It was lighthearted was fun and enjoyable you mentioned that with Giannis making the goof of trying to draft John Morant there on the earlier stages like I I thought the DeMar DeRozan close-up when they were doing the introductions and they announced him as the the master of the mid-range or something was his his facial expression once they called that out was hysterical Um, (laughs) and then the kind of snafu during the pregame interviews with Anthony Edwards while he's trying to warm up not being able to answer uh Jay Crawford's <laughs> questions or anything like that, like just abs- absolutely hysterical. Some of the the kinks that they need to work out right there. Like, was it sloppy at times? Yeah, it was, but it was a lot of fun and kind of the way that they put on the event. And, and I think there's something that we can all relate to about the process of a, even the best guys in the world are going to get kind of chosen in different orders than maybe we might expect when there are people picking teams. So uh, a really, really yeah. fun concept. Yeah, I'd really love to know more about like their draft strategy here. Is it fun? Is it the guys that they just like like most in the league? Uh, I mean, Anthony Edwards, uh, I believe, is rep by Clutch, so like that probably played a role in Ant going number one. Like, what's what's the deal with all of this, right? Like, I think there's probably quite a lot of things that we yeah. could talk about here uh, in terms of draft strategy. I thought it was fascinating that you know, as you mentioned to me with draft strategy, Giannis like cornered the market on guards really LeBron cornered the market on wings throughout his draft his draft and left LeBron or left Giannis with the guards and then in the starters LeBron takes the bigs I don't know if there's really anything worth breaking down in terms of that if only just because nobody is really trying in this thing so who the hell knows except for Jason Tatum tonight Jason Tatum like completely broke the broke the format by not giving a hell, uh, giving a shit and just deciding I'm going to try and I'm going to go for it in the third quarter. He just completely broke the format to where the fourth quarter did not matter. Yeah. I mean, Tatum really just trying to go all out and, and score as many points as he could shows that there's still something that needs to be fixed with NBA all-star Sunday, uh, just in terms of getting it competitive and all the guys kind of joining in. Like I've seen some quotes post game, from Jalen Brown saying that it's glorified layup lines out there and guys don't even enjoy the experience. So something may have to change with the way that the actual game itself is played. 
but I thought that actually All-Star Saturday was a pretty big success for the league this year. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, we had Mac McClung going nuts in the dunk contest. I, I think particularly where it's worth diving into is just the dunk contest. I thought this was a really good dunk contest. Yeah. In part because of Mac McClung, but also because it felt like it brought power back to the dunk contest, right? Like a lot of what I feel like we've seen recently is like in-air acrobatics, but all four of the dudes, Mac McClung, Trey Murphy, KJ Martin, Jericho Sims, they tried to just throw down, right? And I thought that was really fun. I thought it was really good. Like KJ Martin and Jericho Sims, like all due respect, they were there. I thought KJ Martin's off the side of the backboard was pretty fun, but yeah. it took him a while to make it. And Jericho Sims stuffing his whole arm in the rim is impressive on some level. I don't know that it's dunk contest craziness, but I appreciated the fact that all these dudes threw down everything with like real authority. It felt like totally agree with that. And, and, you know, for me, I, I enjoy seeing a bunch of younger guys that are involved in this contest too. It's just something that I always really appreciate about it is it gives different guys a chance to have a spotlight and kind of show what they can do. Uh, so Trey Murphy being out there, Mac McClung, who's been kind of a fringe NBA guy for the last year or so, like, for them to be able to come up and have this moment, I think it shows just how many really good athletes there are out there and how creativity extends beyond just what you see on the court every single game. Well, I thought that everyone was obviously really bummed when Shaden Sharp decided yeah. to bounce from this thing. And I think Shaden Sharp against Mac McClung would have been one hell of a show. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, would that have been unbelievable? But we got a good one anyway, and I'm happy with what we got. Mac McClung wins the NBA dunk contest, throws down a 540 dunk in the final, 540 reverse in the final, threw down one where he like grabbed the ball off of two guys, like one guy on another guy's shoulders, like the Bojack Horseman, Vincent Adultman strategy, <laughs> grabs the ball, taps it off the backboard and throws down a reverse like Mac McClung's hops are just absolutely ridiculous. He is. And look, people that were saying he's like an underdog coming in. I saw someone that got him at like plus 400 early on wow. when the odds got released. And it's just like, this dude has been a dunking prodigy from the time that he came out the womb, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what he's six, three, maybe, maybe six, four, maybe. Like he can get up, man. Like that, that guy's bunnies are ridiculous. I thought that that tap off the backboard dunk was the best one in the entire contest. I know everyone's going to gravitate towards the 540 and, and all that stuff. But to me, to be able to have as quick of hand motions as he has, both with that one and then the double clutch, like to be able to jump that high and then quickly kind of manipulate the ball and move it in different ways at the same time is just outstandingly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Do you want to talk at all about Trey Murphy? I thought that Trey Murphy's like two hand, like windmill thing was absolutely sick. Yeah, that was nuts. I loved the kind of between the legs pass that he has into the, the windmill type of dunk. Like the degree of difficulty that he showed out was huge. Like we've always known Trey as a massive leaper, but I didn't know 
how much he'd really have in his bag to be able to pull out in a situation like this. And and I was I was pleasantly surprised with that. Like typically you don't see guys who are really good floor spacers that come out here and are just all out killing it in the dunk contest. And Trey, he's got a lot more to his game in, in terms of, you know, if he can just be a little bit more fluid off the bounce and get his hips a little bit shiftier, like we might start to see, obviously not the between the legs stuff in games, but like we might see a little bit more rim pressure that he's able to provide. I feel like I need Trey Murphy next year to be in the three-point contest and the dunk contest. Yeah, that'd be cool. Like, do the double. That'd be incredibly fun. I know that the three-point contest has the tendency to kill your legs, but if someone could do it, it has to be someone, like, really, really young, I think. And I I would be fascinated to see him try and do that double. Like, that that would be the dream to me, is Trey Murphy doing the double. That would be super, super cool. Uh, yeah, I don't really have a lot to say about Jericho Sims and KJ Martin. Yeah. I, do you have anything to say about Mac McClung like in the NBA? I mean, he's a two-way player right now. I, I've never been like a Mac McClung NBA player believer necessarily. No. I, I love the story. I love the fact that he seems to be having a really good time with all of the All-Star Weekend festivities. I love the fact that Anytime you watch him, it's just a great time. Even going back to his time at Georgetown, going back to his time at Texas Tech. Like this is a dude that is just a really fun player. I'm just a little bit skeptical of his NBA future, I guess I would say. Yeah, he's a good athlete. He's a good ball player, but he doesn't have one signature skill that he can really hang his hat on right now in terms of how he impacts the game when he's out on the floor. Uh, You know, the, the thing with, the dunk contest, or at least with Mac McClung being there that I wanted to highlight was I think a really smart move by the 76ers to get him to two way and put him out there in their <laughs> uniform, right? Like that's gotta be yeah. some Jersey sales. That's gotta be a little bit of a, a bump for the Sixers right there. Like he is a fringe NBA player. And I mean that with all due respect, like that's not meant to be a slight at him by any means. I don't know what he does well enough to stick around in a rotation long-term but there's enough talent and tools there that he's definitely deserving of kind of the opportunities that he's getting right now. Yeah. So Mac McClung this season in the G league is averaging 18 points, shooting 50% from the field, 41% from three, 79% from the free throw line, 5.3 assists versus 1.8 turnovers. He's having a solid G league season. So like people who will look at those numbers and look over G league numbers pretty regularly. That's probably one of the better available players in the G league right now, who is now no longer available. Like it's completely reasonable to sign him to a two way deal. I don't know that those numbers necessarily indicate a better future beyond that. We'll see. I I would love to see it. I'd love to see him continue on and prove everybody wrong. Uh, including the NBA executives that passed on him in the draft and have had over a season to sign him at this point and just have chosen not to. But a really, really fun player, a really, really fun story. And and I think, honestly, if I'm being real about it, I thought that was the best part of All-Star Weekend. I I thought that Mac McClung winning the dunk contest was the best thing that I saw this weekend. Yeah, and as a proud... Georgetown alum here. I'm I'm glad to see that from a, a fellow Hoya. Um, you're you're taking that one's a win, even though he transferred. I'll take it. As, hey, look, we 
Georgetown doesn't have many wins coming these days, so we got to <laughs> take it where we can get it. Yeah, I feel like that's that's me. Uh, that's me taking on Joe Burrow as an Ohio State alum. Right <laughs> there, there you go. Right? There you go. That's what you got to do. Okay. Anything else? All Star Saturday. Damian Lillard. I thought that his shooting, his best shooting moment was the All Star game, making yeah. that half court three as opposed to like, you know, All Star Saturday winning the three point contest. Tyrese Halliburton had the thirty one point first round which was yep. remarkably impressive i think that everyone had a bit of a meltdown about how this guy with these shooting mechanics just has this unbelievable touch right it's bizarre sam like i, I can't wrap my head around it but it works and if it ain't broke don't fix it so like keep keep going tyrese keep going yep all-star all friday celebrity the celebrity game i'll say this dk metcalf threw down some dunks I had a great time with that. Everything, all of Janelle Monae's vibes <laughs> yes. during the celebrity game, absolutely ruled. Yep. Just absolutely trashing. I forget who it was. Someone blocked her shot early in the game. And she was just absolutely trashing that dude from the bench the entire time. Like cracking up Carlos Boozer the entire game. That ruled. That was really fun. Yep. Honestly, Janelle Monet shit talking from the sidelines was probably better than anything we saw in the all-star game. Well, and the little drag screen that she tried to kind of set there in transition where she just like kept screening on the wrong side of the ball where there was no defense. It was, it was awesome. The best. Uh, just, MVP of the weekend for me, Janelle Monet, hands down. Honestly might be the MVP of yeah. the weekend. Her and Mac McClung. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that ruled the, the, the all-star draft as well. Probably a close third. The all-star draft is probably the most replicable thing of those three that we should be taking forward. But the Janelle Monet of it all, the Mac McClung of it all, great times. The other thing that was a great time, Josh Giddy's coat. My goodness. Josh Giddy rolls in wearing like a blue fur coat. Unbelievable vibes. Unbelievable. Unreal. The most fashion I have seen any Australian bust out in the two and a half years that I've been living here. And both those OKC backcourt boys with, with Shay's jacket that he had out there on, on All-Star Sunday too. Like that's, yep. that's a swaggy backcourt back there. Yeah. It, it was the best. I, I had, I, had, I thought that Giddy was probably the most fun guy on All-Star Friday in the rookie sophomore game. I had a really good time with him. You know, Paulo Bancaro, I thought was very solid. I think he let his, let his team do a win along with Jose Alvarado. I, I don't love the three on three deal. It's less fun to me than just like the straight rookie sophomore game, I guess. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I you know, I, I think the NBA is constantly looking for different ideas and alternatives to try to spice it up a little bit more and keep people engaged. But uh, I don't know if that one is a format that I can see sticking around for a, a long period of time. Yeah, it's nice, I guess, to get the G League guys involved, just particularly like the Ignite guys. Yep. It was kind of cool to see Scoot, but... I don't know. I would prefer it just goes back to the old format, rookies versus sophomores, and we go from there, right? Yeah, totally. Agree. It, maybe even maybe even international versus United States, like they did, right? Like that that was fun yep. for a little while, but I, I think that we should go back to a five on five game in that regard because those dudes, 
there have been times where those dudes like play pretty hard in that game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I'm, I'm biased because I'm a product of the generation I grew up in when I would love watching these weekends every single time, like rookie sophomore game, bring back the old school skills competition with the, the passing through the hoops and the dribbling around the NBA logo mannequins, uh, you know, three point shootout dunk contest and all-star game. Like to me, that's, that's all that you need to have really ingredients for a solid weekend. Will you remember Booby Gibson, like absolutely going nuts in his rookie sophomore game or anything from the 2023 all-star game more? Oh, I'll that since I don't remember the Booby Gibson moment, I'll probably okay. remember. Yeah. I'll probably remember from this one, the the live draft that they did right before the game is being yeah. the first time doing that. That's going to be the most memorable standout thing from the weekend, as well as kind of Mac McClung stamping his his moment in history. Oh, Booby Gibson knocking down 11 threes in the rookie sophomore game oh. in 2008. That was that was glorious. More than more than Jason Tatum knocked down. I think Jason only had 10 tonight, right? Yeah, but uh, that's that's. That's pulling from booby right there. I like that. I didn't know that. Yeah, you got to love it. You absolutely got to love it. Okay, that's all I've got on All-Star. I, I don't need to dive further into this. We've gone for 23 minutes on All-Star. I don't know that the format is broken necessarily. I don't know that the format is is in need of some crazy fix, if only because last season's All-Star game was incredible. It was unbelievable, I thought. And maybe if next year's is just as bad as what this year's was, I'm open to some suggestions, but I feel like what we got this, this year sucked in some respects, but we can find a way to hopefully move forward next year. When we have more of the stars, we get Zion Williamson, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo back. I think Giannis probably would have helped raise the level if I'm being completely honest, because that that guy only knows like one way. I think if Giannis would have been playing in this game, the effort and intensity probably would have been ratcheted up a bit. So my hope is that by getting a lot of those guys involved next year, we don't need to make any like sweeping systemic changes here. We just need to chalk this one up as a loss and move on. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair. Again, if if we can get a competitive All Star game on Sunday night with the new format of the draft, with a solid showing on Saturday, like I think All Star Weekend is is a, a pretty fun environment again. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the NBA age limit, which is back in the news because of some of the press conferences that occurred during NBA All-Star Weekend. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. 
everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. The age limit is back in the news. As people know, you need to be 19 years old in the calendar year of the NBA draft and be one year removed from high school in order to be eligible for the NBA draft. There are some workarounds, as we've seen, uh, such as Thon Maker. Uh, over the course of the last little while, Shaden Sharp additionally found some workarounds. Theoretically, he was a year removed and turned 19 in the year, but agents and teams around players have found ways to work around things uh, in a creative way, such as reclassifications, everything like that. But there are new collective bargaining agreement negotiations occurring. And it seems to be very positive right now with everything regarding the CBA. Tamika Tramalio and Adam Silver both spoke and they both said it's absolutely a priority, quoting Adam Silver there, for the two sides to come to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement. It seems like this is going to happen before the opt-out on March 31st. They keep pushing back the opt-out date. It feels like both sides, according to Schmalio, are motivated to get this done. My my guess is that we're not going to have a lockout. Things are going to roll. That feels all very positive, right, Adam? Yep. Yeah, totally agree. So another thing that was brought up, because every time Adam Silver does one of these press conferences, someone asks him about it, because it is something that Adam Silver continues to bring up 
is the age limit. Quoting here from Tim Bontemps, a.k.a. Timmy Goodtimes, his article over at ESPN, having attended the press conference, another topic addressed by union leadership was the possibility of lowering the age limit to allow high school players to enter the draft once again. This would eliminate the one-and-done rule that has been in place for the last couple of decades. While the union said it was open to the idea, it was clear any such change would have to be met with some ability to ensure jobs for veteran players would remain in place. There would also need to be a structure in place to ensure young players coming into the NBA have the best chance to succeed. This is something that we have had conversations about, Tramalio said. In our meetings today, we spent a lot of time talking about that. We recognize that we really do need to make sure that we have the structure in place if we're going to have people join the league at the age of 18. We also appreciate that there is a lot of benefit to really having veterans who can bring those 18-year-olds along. And so, you know, certainly anything that we would even consider, to be quite honest, would have to include a component that would allow veterans to be a part of it as well. People who listen to this show know that my stance on this for a while has been, I don't see the age limit getting moved anytime soon. And the reason for that is I am unclear on who it benefits. Tamika Tramalio very intelligently laid that out here. The people who tend to negotiate these agreements are veteran players on the Players Association side. And veteran players have higher minimum contracts than rookie players. They have all of the reason in the world here to not want younger players to continue to enter the league, if only because owners can't help themselves and bet on upside because if you hit on one of these players, the benefit is through the roof on the team side. I just don't know why owners would not want the extra year of evaluation. I don't know why teams wouldn't want the extra year of evaluation to try and get these picks more right and not throw money down the drain on guys that are much less finished products. Oh, by the way, they're going to have to spend money developing the guy for an extra year now than what they would previously. So while Adam Silver seems like he really wants the age limit to be lowered every time that he's asked about it, he says he hopes that there can be some agreement, something along those lines where the age limit can come down. It feels like to me that Adam Silver has a very real moral stance in this case that he believes 18 year olds should be play should be able to play in the NBA if their talent allows them to be selected in that manner. I just don't see it. I I really don't see it. Did you see anything from this weekend that makes you think otherwise, Adam? No, no, not at all. And I think that you and I have been aligned in this stance for a while there. I keep going back to you know, this, this idea of qui bono, right? Who benefits from a rule change? And, and I can't really, other than 18-year-olds who might prefer going to the league than taking one year of college or an al- alternative route, like there's nobody else that benefits. And if you do make a change, if you do put this into a collective bargaining agreement, the law of unintended consequences always will will pop up here. And one of those is what we 
really got to see that the union is quite aware of this weekend. It's not necessarily an unintended consequence. It's one they're quite aware of that veterans will be most likely ones losing their jobs a little bit more, or it just gives a longer runway for projects to come into the NBA. And as a result, teams are going to be more patient with them and prioritize that long-term growth of a, a teenager over signing another veteran or making a different move for those guys. So I simply don't see it really happening or any type of changes taking place. I guess the one asterisk that I would give of an unless is that if there's some way to attach this with possible expansion down the line, that if there are more teams and more roster spots, that might open up the opportunity for some younger guys to come in because at the end of the day, veterans aren't really losing any jobs or opportunities. Here's the other thing. If you're going to have younger players in the league at this point, which I don't really think is the best idea in the world, to be honest. I think that there are now enough avenues for players to make money in many cases, such as in college with name, image, and likeness rights. There are avenues to where they can make more money, right? I don't see it as valuable. Having said that, if you are set on doing this, it would require full expansion of the G League to where there are there's a one for one for everyone, right? We don't currently have that. You would need to probably prioritize the G League as a real developmental league. I don't know how much you watch the G League, Adam. I I don't mean to be rude, but those games aren't the prettiest things in no. the world. It's a lot of guards that are gunning for NBA spots. It's a lot of basketball that isn't necessarily all that coherent and filled with teamwork because the rosters change so drastically. Like Oklahoma City will one day have Aaron Wiggins, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, Usman Jeng down there. Then they'll bring them up for the G League and then or from the G League to the NBA in the next game it's all of the guys that are just on the G league team playing. So it's, it's just a complicated thing where if you wanted to do this, well, I think you would have to expand the G league. The G league is a money loser for the NBA. So owners probably won't want to do that. There, There just isn't anything here that says to me, expanding the draft pool and allowing non one and done players that are high school players to re-enter the draft is something that should happen. I, I, I just don't, I don't see it. I don't see it as all that useful. I don't see it as solving a problem that the league has. I don't see it as solving a problem for teenagers anymore. Teenagers can come over here to Australia. Teeno, teenagers can go to the G league ignite. They can go make money off of their NIL at, whatever university they want to go to guys like Nigel pack are making $400,000 a year in NIL rights as was very publicly reported over the summer from John Ruiz and life wallet. It's, it's just one of those things where it feels like as collectives get stronger, as NIL gets stronger in college, there's just no problem that's actually being solved here by letting these kids come in. 
I totally agree. And, and again, the law of unintended consequences looks at the other problems that would be caused by adding something like this. And I think the G League stuff is, is really important that you brought up of how much it kind of changes the dynamic down at that level, whether it's a, a need for more money to be spent, more teams to be added, you know, that the whole uh, two-way system that has really come up it has changed the flow and rhythm of a lot of those games and the product that comes down on that court. It feels very AAU-like in a lot of different settings. And that's a challenge when trying to do realistic player evaluation at that level, because you never know who's going out for theirs or who's actually trying to sacrifice and make winning plays. Uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into this question, Sam, but at the end of the day, I think the conclusion is the same. No, yeah. I don't see a pathway forward to 18 year olds being included in this CBA as a priority to come back into the draft. Well, and there there probably are ways to do it, right? But it, all of them involve very complicated answers, right? Yeah. E- everything that would happen here to make this work would involve solutions that just would complicate matters beyond what is necessary at the end of the day. You'd have to come up with complex solutions to a problem that doesn't really exist, frankly. And if I was the NBA and I was the owners and I was the players and I have other issues to sort through, why would you focus on this one? Like, why would you try and create the mechanism to do this when it just doesn't solve any sort of real issue in my opinion? So yeah. Do you have anything else to say? I feel like we've kind of explained why this look, it's possible that Adam Silver just feels so strongly about this, that he convinces the owners and the owners push for this from the players association. And they're willing to figure all this out. Right. I wouldn't rule that out. I just also, I don't know why we would, if I, if we were in the middle of that negotiation and I was on either side of the table, I just don't know why I would be sitting there wondering why we're wasting our time on this issue when there are so many other bigger issues in a potential collective bargaining agreement than this one. Yeah. If there's ever contention between the two sides, it seems like this has to be the first point to be dropped, right? Like that's the biggest reason why I don't have optimism that anything would change. Even if the NBA makes a principled pitch and the the union agrees on it, like at the end of the day, this can't stand in the way of getting a, a good CBA done. It can't. Yeah. And I I don't think it will at the end of the day. I just absolutely do not think that it will stand in the way, but we will see. Okay. Let's move on to NBA draft stuff. 2023 NBA draft stuff is here. Adam, I think that our biggest disagreement out of any prospect this year is probably Keontae George. We have some disagreements on prospects this year, I think I might be like a little bit higher on Jet Howard than you are. I think I might be a little bit higher on Bryce Sensabaugh. I think I might be a little bit higher on Grady Dick and Asore Thompson. But the guy that like really stands out to me is Keontae. So Mm -hmm. where do you have Keontae on your board currently? Yeah, I have him as a top seven guy. Uh, I think he's right in that like five, six, seven range for me. Um, And and I can certainly explain why as we get going here, but uh, I just, I've always liked the tools that we've been able to see from him and he, he can really go off and, and score in special ways in bunches. So I have Keontae George as like 13, 14, 15, 16, somewhere at 12, 12 to 16 is the range I have 
for Keontae right now. Keontae George over the weekend, I thought had one of the most strangely instructive games that I've seen a prospect play this year. He had 20 points against a top five Kansas team at Fog Allen Fieldhouse, a really difficult place to play. He went seven of 15 from the field. He went two of five from three or no, went five of 10 from three. I'm sorry. Uh, had one assist versus six turnovers. Only got to the line once, which is actually a bit of a lower number for him than normal. That was on a, I believe, and one on a three-point opportunity that he took. So wasn't really getting into the paint all that often in this game either, it felt like. What did you think of this performance from Keontae? Let's start there. What, what was your take on this game from Keontae, George? So Keontae is one of these guys who, once he knows his shot is going, he is going to unabashedly try to get it off time and time again. And yeah. I think right away, and, and it's clear the way that Baylor pounced on Kansas out of the gates, his shot, he was feeling it. And he wanted to continue to try to, to get that off. The challenge with Keontae, for all of the skills and the blending of tools that he has that I really like, is that I don't think he knows how to use them consistently yet. That if he's if yeah. he's feeling it, he's going to just try and score. If he's not feeling it, he can pass, he can attack the lane and get to the free throw line a ton. But everything revolves around whether he's confident in his jumper from that moment. And we saw at the very beginning of that game some really tough one-on-one shots that he was able to make in isolation, just deep NBA range threes or even way beyond NBA range, like, The scoring upside from him, particularly beyond the three-point line, is really tantalizing. But, man, can he force some really bad ones. He over-dribbles at times. He's not the best separator one-on-one, so when defenders get into him, he can be a little bit turnover-prone. He's a little bit predictable right now. And I think that's solvable, which is why I'm higher on Keontae than others. But it's certainly reared its head in both ways in this Kansas game where really great at the start. And then once they got into him and dared him to continue to be that scorer one-on-one Baylor's offense completely sputtered out of control. So I thought he was really, really bad at the start of this game. He threw three absolutely terrible wild passes that resulted in turnovers. He ended up having like a loose ball turnover where he got it ripped. I can't remember who by, and then missed a transition three with like 25 seconds left on the shot clock where I think he had like someone shrieking down the court, could have made a pass. And he just like pressed, right? He pressed. He was a freshman playing his first game at Fog Allen Fieldhouse and they took him off the court. And like, you could see they showed him on the bench. Like he was, he was frustrated. He was like disappointed in himself more than anything. Right. I want to say he came back on like around the 12 minute mark took a couple minutes to like really settle in again. And then from the 10 minute mark to like the TV timeout at the four minute mark, he was unconscious and he got unconscious by burying like a ridiculous crossover into a sidestep to the right three over Dewan Harris. And you could just see like his confidence, like go through the roof at that point. Right. I think he made like five of his next six shots. He had an enormous transition dunk over KJ Adams, buried a few tough threes, mentioned that and one uh, three point opportunity where he got the four point play. 
He had 15 points in those six and a half minutes. If you look at the other 22 minutes, he had five points, six turnovers, one assist, you know, a couple of rebounds. I think he had like maybe, maybe two rebounds. And then I think he went like two of nine or something from the field. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't think he defended that well in that yeah, game. Yeah, he he. this was not a good defensive game from Keontae at all. Yeah. So it was kind of the ultimate everything here from Keontae, right? You saw that six and a half minute run where you buy into it and you're just like, this is it. This is great. And then you had the other 22 minutes where he was bad. Like he was actually actively bad for Baylor, I thought, in that game. And what do you do with that? Like th- this is why evaluating freshmen is really hard, right? Yeah. Someone like Keontae George is never going to be consistent for rarely going to be consistent for a full 30 minute period. So what do you do here? And, and I think you have to look at the process. I think you have to look at everything. So when I kind of lay it out like that, what what, what is kind of going through your mind here? Yeah, it, it's again, the consistency is, is hard to find for him right now. I, I mentioned the term predetermining a little bit. Like I think yeah, that's the biggest thing for him. I've seen some flashes where he's a really good playmaker and passer. I've seen some ability that he has to just be super creative, but if he's going to go out there and try to tell himself what his next move is going to be, he's so much easier to guard and he's wildly inefficient. But if he can read the game a little bit better, if he can play off of other stars and be maybe a little bit heavier of a catch-and-shoot guy or attacking closeouts as opposed to playing with the ball in his hands in the middle third of the floor, I think that opens up a little more opportunity from him. I've seen good defense from Keontae in the past. I think he definitely has it in him. He's not the fastest guy in the world laterally, but he's strong. He's decently long. If he wants to compete on that end, he can. He's gotten better in some aspects this year at Baylor. Uh, I know that was something that Scott Drew talked a lot about in that December period is how much growth Keontae had on defense over the first like two to two and a half months of camp and of the season. But he's got to be able to put it all together on a consistent basis because the result of all of these flashes and then disappearing acts that he's able to do with his game is inefficiency. He's not efficient from the two-point line. He's barely about 34 35% from three. Turns it over way too much for a guy who is a talented passer. And he seems uninterested in playing high-level defense at times. So I evaluate him based on the tools, right? He is a freshman. Yeah. He is a young guy. I see all of those tools and how if he finds that consistency, he becomes an incredibly valuable pro player because he can catch fire. He shoots the ball from three, good decision maker, good frame. But he's just got to do it first. And and that's, like you said, I think perfectly, the challenge in evaluating freshmen is you, how much do you rely on the flashes and the skill and projecting that the package can come together? And how much do you just be frustrated by guys not knowing how to do that yet? So I think a big part of the Keontae conversation is it seems like there is a real disparity in terms of how people evaluate his athleticism. Mm. And I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think of Keontae George's athleticism? Uh, solid, but not above average in any type of way. Um, I think yeah. that 
he's, you know, you saw the, the dunk that he had at Kansas and, and the burst that he can play if he's got a runway, but I don't think he separates well enough to be able to do that effectively yeah. a lot of the yep. time. For me, it's more so like shying away from contact, trying to drive around guys instead of th- for a guy who gets a lot of free throws. Like I think he does try to avoid contact a decent amount. Um, let's so, so like, let, let, let's stick with the athleticism for sure. a second. Um, I, I don't think he is a monster athlete like that, that dunk that he threw down on KJ Adams. He got a f- clean runway, yep. got to really load up off of two feet and got to like rise up. I mean, that's a situation where if you're like a high level NBA athlete, your head should probably be at the rim. Right. And his head wasn't really at the rim. And then you look at the ability to separate. I feel like that's not really there as you've brought up. He's very creative. He's crafty with his footwork. I don't think he has a good first step. I don't think that he is. He's a bit boxier than someone so you really like Jaden Hardy last year right and Jaden Hardy's name is one that I've brought up a lot in regard to Keontae George with NBA scouts and and frankly I asked them the question why is Keontae George a better prospect than Jaden Hardy uh the answer tends to be he's bigger he's stronger but I I think Jaden had a better handle I think he had a craftier handle I think that his hips are just a little bit more fluid getting in and out of his ability to handle. I I don't know that. I think Keontae can be a creative passer and I think he can find creative angles, but I think he predetermines a lot of the time, like you said, what his decision is going to be on that possession. And on top of it, I think he's an inaccurate passer. He sees the reads, but doesn't often hit them in a place where they can go up or we'll turn it over. Right. That's, that's like a skill thing that is fixable, but if you can't really separate, you're going to be crowded a lot, and that just makes those plays harder. All of this is why I think I'm generally not quite as high on him as many seem to be right now. Uh, it, it seems like he is like on the draft Twitter community and, you know honestly on this podcast because both yeah. you and Mark I'm, are big fans of I'm high Keontae. on him. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about him with Mark before Mark really likes him. I, I just can't, I can't get there. Like this is a guy that has an, like a, what a regular, like a one-to-one assist turnover ratio has real accuracy concerns as a passer. Doesn't separate super well, not super efficient as a player. I think he can shoot. And I think he can like break that break down guys off the bounce, but I, I'm just a little bit lower on the way all of that bears itself out in terms of role. I think he would need to be like a Bradley Beal, Eric Gordon level shooter, right? Yep. And those yep. are two very different shooters, right? Like Bradley Beal's unbelievable. Eric Gordon's like a really, really good shooter. I don't know if he's that yet. Do you? No, I think Eric Gordon's actually, you know, I'm not huge on player comparisons and, and comps. For, for what it's worth, yeah, for what it's worth, that's the name I get most is yeah. like post-injury, not Clippers Eric Gordon, but like post-injury, not quite as athletic as young Eric Gordon was, like Indiana Eric Gordon, yep. 
early career Eric Gordon. Like after that, after he dealt with some of those injuries, that level Eric Gordon. Some of the other names I get from teams are I've gotten like Jordan Poole, Anthony Simons, Tyler Hero in terms of like role of what he can be. I I think Tyler Hero is a much better shooter than he is. I think that Poole and Simons are just way twitchier and more fluid off the bounce than Keontae is. Whereas like Keontae is trying to get you like in between cadences and try to like get you off balance and try to get you on the back foot and then being able to pull up like in between cadence. Right. Yeah. So it's hard. He's a hard one. I think he is there. I think there are going to be a lot of challenging ones in this, this draft cycle and class for me, particularly the freshmen right here. Like how I sort through them from that seven to 18 range is, is going to be challenging for me with Keontae and, and where I've always kind of envisioned him a little bit more is having a much stronger spot up role at the next level than he does right now. And that's where the Anfordy mm-hmm. Simons and maybe Eric Gordon comparisons ring a little bit more uh, sensible to me this year at Baylor and, and looking at the, the numbers on synergy right now, 56% of his jump shots are off the bounce. And I think that's going to be a really high number compared to what his NBA role is going to be. I think that he's probably a predominantly catch-and-shoot guy in the backcourt who, when you need him to, can maybe create his own a little bit once he gets going uh, in the half court and sees one or two go in. I like the ability to attack closeouts and get to the rim a little bit more. If he's more of an off-ball guy and a second-side creator, then this is going to allow him to – maybe attack defenses that are already scrambling or moving, negate some of the first step issues that I think he really has. If an NBA team puts the ball in his hands and wants him to be a primary guy, I see a lot of inefficiency for Keontae. But I think he's a really good number three type of option because he can shoot it, because he can get hot, and he's just a a guy that knows how to leverage himself to to get to the basket. You mentioned the, the crafty footwork, the things like that. I like the skill level that he brings to the table and would rather teach a guy who has those skills at a young age how to harness it than try to just continually do skill development and refinement for the next two to three years of their rookie contract. Yeah, so you brought up some of the per possession synergy numbers like that, right? I think one place where there is some real upside is using him off of screens and using him getting moving, right? has made 47.8% of his 23 three-point attempts off of screens this season. I I don't know that he's that good at it, but I think he is someone that can take them off the hop, can get set pretty quickly, has a pretty fluid shot. Uh, In terms of his catch-and-shoot opportunities, he's like middle of the pack in the country in large part because he's only shooting 27% on guarded catch and shoot threes he's at 44.1 percent on unguarded catch and shoot threes you would think again playing more of a secondary role next to an nba star someone like that those opportunities will be more opened up having said that i do think he is more of an off-ball player i think that that's where his game profiles best in terms of half-court opportunities He's getting to the rim like twice per game in the half court in terms of like shots taken there. Uh, 
don't love the in-between game. I don't really love his runner game. There, there's just a lot there that I'm not wildly high on in terms of him being like a tried and true creator at the next level, right? But there's enough to where I do I do like him. Like when I say all of this, I've Keontae George, so more 12 to 16. I'm, I am intrigued by him for sure. And I think that there are real scenarios where he hits upside but i've seen some people have him over like brandon miller like i i can't get there no no i would rather take the flyer on cam whitmore's upside i think that that's probably one thing that you disagree with they're neck and neck for me in a lot of different ways they're just so different players and whitmore is really young and has, has a lot to continue to learn i just i i struggle with ball stops like cam i really do like i wish I wish that he was just a faster decision maker and, and yeah. a better playmaker for others. Like that's the thing with Keontae is I don't, when he predetermines he's bad, but we've seen flashes of how he can make reads and make good decisions. The accuracy stuff might be able to improve a little bit more, but I trust him a hell of a lot more as a second side creator uh, than, than I do cam. Yeah, no, I do too. It's like a quick decision maker passer, all of that. I agree with you. I just think that Cam's athletic upside is so much greater. That guy can be an absolute force when he has wider driving lanes, better driving angles in the NBA. He needs to be more aggressive. I think like Villanova's offense is not that poorly spaced. There is not really a reason for him to be not getting to the rim as much as he doesn't in the half court. Yeah, it's because he's slow. He's he's not decisive enough off the catch. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Like, he needs to just rip and go, I think, on some level, and he doesn't do that. So, one comparison point is the guy that Keontae George played this week, Grady Dick, right? Where do you fall on Keontae George versus Grady Dick? Because... If we think Keontae plays better off the ball, I think that Grady is the better prospect as an off-ball player. Where, where do you fall on those two? Yeah, so to me, better doesn't mean entirely off the ball, right? That better means that just a larger percentage of his diet comes in catch-and-shoot or spot-up varieties. And, and to me, I don't see a world where Grady Dick has any ball-with-his-hands creation responsibility. He is a... movement shooting gravity guy. He is a spot up threat. He is going to open up the floor for rim attacks and transition because teams have to be aware of him running to the three point line. But as soon as he catches it, he's one dribble or less. He's quick reversal. He's got to be able to shoot it, finish it or move it. Keontae can run a second side pick and roll. He can come off dribble handoffs and make good reads. I think of an offense like the Miami heats under Eric Spolstra, where there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of dribble handoffs and things involved. Keontae fits in well because if he gets the ball and is run off the line, he's going to make good decisions with it for himself and for others. I feel a lot more comfortable about him defending at the pro level than I do Grady Dick. I think Grady is bigger and has good awareness. I was going to ask you this next, so I'm glad that you brought this up. Yeah, Grady's awareness is is pretty high right now. He understands how teams are going to try to attack him and, and is smart enough to try to mitigate that, but point of attack he is much more of a, a liability to me than a guy like Keontae is so uh yeah I'm, I'm team Keontae on this one I, I have him a couple spots higher than Grady and 
I think the biggest reason for that is, again, if Grady has the ball in his hands, I don't, I don't think that there's much upside there. I, I think that Keontae does have some upside to reel in the decision-making, be a little bit more accurate of a passer. Second side, off movement, off handoffs, he can be really good and effective attacking downhill for himself and others. As an off-ball weapon who then gets the ball and then like attacks the closeout and makes decisions, who do you trust more as a passer decision-maker? Of those two. I trust Keontae. See, I trust Grady a little bit more. I think that Grady, there's just so much less movement with Grady in terms of he's going to make the decision quicker. And I think he's going to keep the offense in flow better. I think that his passing ability is a little bit underrated. It's not like wildly underrated or anything like that, but I think he is like a pretty slick passer when he attacks a closeout and like sees a corner kick out. If he's coming off like from the corner driving left hand corner help man comes, he hits the opposite corner for like a wide open three. Like I think that Grady reads the court quicker than Keontae does, which I think profiles a little bit better to that off ball role. I agree with you that Keontae has way more on ball upside. Yeah. Way, way more. I actually like Grady's defense a little bit more. I think Grady's team defense is better. I think that his hands are really, really good. I think his anticipation is good where he gets a little bit lost from time to time is like communication stuff where there's like a complex read that he has to make. And like complex decision between another guy on an exchange where I think he gets lost on a lot of those and like their breakdowns, Kansas's I think tend to be more based on that than anything. I agree. Like Grady's also six foot eight, which is just enormous. Like that's a, it's much easier to hide Grady than I think it's going to be to hide Keontae George. I'm not sitting here saying that like I'm in love with either of them. I think I would take Grady ahead of him because I also think that Grady's upside as a shooter is like ridiculous. Like I, I think he can be like a top six or seven shooter in the league at some point. Um, I, I have talked to a couple of teams where they've asked me like, "Does do you think that Grady Dick has Clay Thompson offensive upside? And wow. given the high release point, given the uh, ability to knock it down off of movement, given the ability to make shots without having to dip the ball, given the fact that he's a 42% three-point shooter right now as a freshman, on top of it has the ability to make some passing reads, to attack a closeout, to just generally intelligently and reactively move off the ball. I think it's a very, very low percent chance that he's that. But like, if I told you in five years, there's a 5% chance he's Clay Thompson with offensively, not defensively, offensively, like that's, that's in the possible outcomes here, right? It's possible. I mean, yeah, I I think, I think Kyle Korver is a a more likely outcome. I agree with that too. Yeah. 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 And Kyle Korver's the Kyle Korver is honestly like probably the guy that fits this best. 
Yeah. And, you know, another guy, not to take it in a, a slightly different direction here, but like Jet Howard is another shooter that might be around this range with versatility and touch. And he's six foot eight, has some defensive concerns. Like these three guys are, are going to be real tricky to try to slot in comparison to each other between now and draft night. I think a lot yeah. of it has to come down to what the team drafting them can surround those guys with. Like Grady Dick needs to play with more ball first guys, guys who can operate or put pressure yep. on the rim with the ball in their hands. I think Jet needs a system that can really spring him free and get him down downhill, maybe even a little bit more than a guy like Keontae. There's just it's it's really going to be scheme and, and fit dependent for what is going to be asked of these guys at the next level. I tend to be a little bit higher on Keontae because I trust his consistency just a little bit more than the numbers kind of indicate right now. So fun question, right? We just sure. said Kyle Corver for Grady Dick or Eric Gordon for Keontae George. Let, let's say that Eric Gordon's best years outside of those like Clippers in that early run with New Orleans. Let, let's say that his best years came in Houston, right? Okay. Kyle Corver's best years came in Atlanta. Corver mm-hmm. averaged 11 points, 46% from the field, 46% from three, 89% from the line, four rebounds, two assists, became a good team defender, not like a plus defender. Eric Gordon averaged 16 points, two rebounds, two assists, 42% from the field, 36% from three, 80% from the line. Useful defender insofar as could guard up the lineup. Wouldn't say he was a plus plus defender. Would say that you could make it work in a playoff scheme, right? Would you rather have Hawks Kyle Korver that made that weird all-star game where frankly, like shouldn't have been an all-star, right? Like, let's just be real about that. Yep. Or Rockets, Eric Gordon. So I know it's shooting my own argument in the foot here. I I take Corver because I think that's more scalable to different situations, different star players and things you can get. But I think that you have to be much more solid with the evaluation that Grady Dick is going to turn into that guy and that you can blanket him defensively. I think that there are fewer holes, so to speak, in what Keontae George would be projectable to. Yeah. No, I I think that's interesting. It's it's just like, the reason I bring that up is like, it's an interesting, like, archetypal discussion in terms of what you want, what you don't want, what works for you, what you're looking for as an evaluator, what you're trying to find. I don't know. The The answer for me on that is I don't know which one I would rather have, frankly, uh, between those two. I think you can make a case either way. I, I think that Corver, like at his peak in Atlanta, where like he, he was the best floor spacer in the league, I think he probably was a little bit more valuable. Uh, but do I think Grady Dick is going to shoot 48% from three at some point right. on – 900 attempts basically over a two-year stretch that feels aggressive to me even as someone that really likes Grady Dick that feels aggressive to me yeah that's banking Um, on him to be literally the best shooter in the game at high volume 
in an offense because yeah. Kyle Corver, when he was playing for Coach Bud in Atlanta, I mean, everything revolved around him as a threat in that offense. He wasn't the leading scorer by any means, but the sets that they ran, the movement, the gravity, the stagger screens, trying to find him in transition yeah. off of every weak side screen you could find, like, it, it all revolved around Kyle in that regard. I just, I have a, I think that's a lot harder to accomplish than people realize that while Grady Dick is an elite shooting prospect in terms of what we've seen over the last several years to get to that level that Kyle Korver was at, to get to the level that even JJ Redick was at with the Clippers in terms of how he opened up the entire playbook for guys like Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. It's so rare to find somebody like that. And you're banking on the best case outcome for Grady Dick to become that. Otherwise he's like a, high 30s, maybe low 40s shooter who can play 20 to 26 minutes a night and probably has some defensive concerns. Like I'd rather take the swing on the upside for Keontae. Yeah, I, I would be surprised if Grady Dick, like when he's like 23, isn't like a 42% three-point shooter, 40, 42 to 44% three-point shooter. Yeah. It, the release point is so high. It's so clean. I, I just really, he has that NBA range already. I would be surprised if he's not a not just like a good shooter, but like one of the great shooters in the NBA. Yeah, I think. he's he's the best shooter in this draft class. I'm I'm pretty certain on that. I, I feel pretty good about that as well. Um, I, I have Grady very slightly ahead of Keontae. I, I have him in that like nine, ten, eleven range, whereas I have Keontae in that like twelve to sixteen group. Uh, I trust Grady's defense a little bit more at this point in a team concept. I think that he is going to be an enormous off ball scoring weapon. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I worry about Keontae's efficiency, his athleticism, his, uh, I mean, this is the other thing. Like we haven't talked a ton about like Keontae's efficiency. I mean, I think he has like a 52 true shooting percentage, like something yeah, in that low. ballpark. Right. Yeah, it's it's low. So, he's not he's not great from two right now. Like it, it, I still think a lot of it comes down to predetermining what he's going to try to do. Like as soon as he puts the ball on the floor with his first bounce, you can kind of tell by watching. Is he trying to separate and isolate to try to get his shot off, or is he a little bit more probing with his head up, trying to read and and find the guy that he can pass the ball to? Yeah, and just to to be clear, it's a fifty three true shooting percentage, not right. a fifty two. Um, well, I really like Keontae George. I have him as a lottery guy, to be clear. But as I'm sure you have, you talk to people around the league. Keontae is more polarizing yes. than I think the internet would have you believe. Uh, and I think that one person that like was on that very quickly from talking to people is Jeremy Wu uh, at Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated. Shout out Jeremy Wu, who yeah, does a great job. Someone should hire Jeremy Wu, who got laid off over at Sports Illustrated this week. Jeremy does a great job go hire Jeremy. Um, but Jeremy was on that very early and Jeremy was hundred percent right in terms of the way teams feel about Keontae. It's a bit of a mix. Uh, and I wrote about that this week as well, or last week when I did the mock, it's definitely a bit of a mix in terms of Keontae. Yeah, there are a lot of guys in the backcourt wing area from six to 16. That is going to be Really interesting to see how they get sorted, both in terms of the the consensus and kind of what we hear from from other people around the league with who they favor at that period of time. There's still a lot of basketball left to be played for many of these guys this season, and I think that a lot of the the long term ramifications of what draft order they might go in is still to be settled. 
So going to be a fun final stretch run of the season for, for a lot of them. Okay. Adam, do you have anything else that you need to get off your chest? Anything you need to talk about before we get out of here? Oh boy. Anything to get off my chest. I, I think for me, I just kind of blinked and missed it. And all of a sudden we're in the final two weeks of the college basketball regular season here. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's four, usually four games over this two week span for teams. And then you get into conference tournaments. So if you're looking at standings and you want to watch Imani Bates, if you want to watch Gigi Jackson, if you want to watch some of these guys who don't play on competitive programs that'll make postseason tournaments, like you've got a handful of opportunities or fewer remaining to do so, make sure that you tune in. So as I'm sitting down and trying to plan out the schedule of games to watch this week and, and who to tune into, I'm pretty keenly aware that like there's only a, a couple opportunities left to see many of these guys because of the teams that they play on. So uh, that snuck up on me and caught me by surprise. But to me, that's uh, th- that's pretty much the only thing I've been thinking about for much of the last 72 hours. This is a draft guide week for me. I will be diving deep into the world of the NBA draft, trying to figure out what in the world is going to happen over the course of this draft cycle. It's going to be very difficult, very long process one guy that i have had some people bring up to me that we haven't really talked about at all have you watched much miami yet i've watched a couple of games in miami i haven't done really a, a deep dive on them i know earlier in the season i loved my guy norchad um but I, yeah there's they're an interesting team they're a really interesting team yeah and one guy that a couple of scouts have brought up to me a little bit more often recently is isaiah wong Yep. They're six foot three kind of combo guard, I guess I would call him. I uh, believe he's from New Jersey, went to high school in Pennsylvania. If I am getting that right, I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm not getting that right. Uh, gets to the line a reasonable amount, finishes inside the paint, shooting 45 from the field, 38% from three, 83 from the line. He's gotten better as a passer and playmaker this year. I think he's gotten better as a defender this year at the point of attack, although that team is just not very good defensively, but he is carrying a top 20 offense right now. I I don't know. He's one where I wonder if there is some real people are kind of missing it with him a little bit. Equity. He can score, man. Like there's no doubt. He is a playground ish scorer, like really bursty in, in tight spaces. He's got this unbelievable creativity and almost playground style game that he can bring to the table. He's been showing that in flashes for a couple of years now with the hurricanes. It's just a question of, can he harness that to be efficient and can he make plays well enough for others? Because at his size, like a six, three ish combo guard, even though he's decently long and, and athletic, it's going to be hard to play him up the lineup. So uh, those are the things that I've wanted to see coming into the year. And I haven't done my deep dive yet to see if he checks those boxes or has improved in a lot of those areas, but uh, Miami is a really fun watch in general just because of the style that they play. Spread you out, really high tempo, bunch of guys that can put the ball on the floor and make things happen. Uh, that's that's a really fun team to watch come March. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm very, very interested to watch them. Uh, yeah, let, let's call it there. Let, let's call it here on this show. Your face is back. I can look at you again. <laughs> this is obviously only going to be a podcast episode because Spins – and his uh, internet decided to die on us, unfortunately, while we tried to live stream. 
we will have the first 10 minutes of that live stream on this episode followed by the last hour that we recorded uh just kind of rocking here right on the audio which is yeah. good i'm glad that we did this but Pre- appreciate your patience there sam we uh we made it work in the end i will be back wednesday with someone else i will be back friday with schindler maybe thursday night on the youtube channel into friday morning for the podcast feed keep it locked here until next time we will talk soon bye Thank you.